Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for this week's edition of All Things Evangelism. This is where we have a conversation with a pastor, evangelist, biblical scholar about the Gospel Commission and various topics that relate to soul winning and evangelism. And today we've got uh, conference evangelist Justin Tarosian with us. Thank you, Justin, for joining me on the podcast, bro. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. And just so, so that you guys know, bro is something we say where I come from instead of mate. So I just said <laughs> right. mate in case you were confused out there. Hey, so today, Justin, our top, what we want to talk about together is the master evangelist. Jesus was a soul winner. And the Bible says that the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus is the premier evangelist. And anyone who follows Jesus is, to a lesser degree, an evangelist, even if it's not your gift. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Couldn't you just translate that? Follow me and I'll make you an evangelist? Yeah, totally. Because I'm the master evangelist, right? So we just wanted to talk, consider Jesus and how he did soul winning ministry. And I hear you've got a few you know, thoughts on the subject. So that's why you're here, brother. Do you want to kick off the oh, conversation? You have any thoughts? Yeah. About Jesus the master. Happy to bounce back and forth. I know you've got some gold that you'd like to share on this too. When we hear the word evangelist, because it means the proclamation, the sharing of the gospel, we often think of vocalizing it, preaching and, and teaching. And um, the longest sermon that we have on record of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, interestingly enough, Desire of Ages points out that it was right after the ordination of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, that they went down to the seaside and there were large groups of people and Jesus started preaching and teaching. Um, Matthew chapter five to seven. This is those three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I think I heard it in a, a sermon a few years, about a number of years ago. It may have been you, Matt. It may have been someone else, but they asked the question, when do you think Jesus was preparing for the Sermon on the Mount? Like, when did he write it? And their suggestion was, and I think they're spot on, that Jesus' preparation for the Sermon on the Mount happened in his first 30 years of life. Like, as he was in the carpenter's shop working with Joseph, as he was going about his day, as he was going to the temple to worship, Jesus was having this message constructed in his mind, eternal principles from God's word on how his kingdom works, and encapsulated in human illustrations and language. And I guess something that, something, the first point that comes to my mind when we talk about how to pattern after Jesus, the master evangelist, is that Jesus, for him, his message preparation, whether teaching or preaching, his preparation was his life. So the sermons he gave, the spiritual conversations he had with individuals, these came out of the overflow of his walk with God. And like, I found that in my own life, the best sermons that I've ever preached and the best spiritual conversations that I've had with someone, they're almost always involving things that have come from something that God has spoken to me personally in my time with him, through nature, through his word, through conversations with godly people who have who've shared with me in conversation. And it's like, if we go through life and we're like, okay, I'm just doing life now, but now I'm going to come prepare a sermon and sit down and study and just prepare. There's a time and place for sermon writing and teaching, writing a Bible study and that kind of thing. But the best preparation that we see from the life of Jesus is to live a life walking with God and to allow a sermon, a spiritual conversation to be the overflow of what he's taught you, the overflow of what he's been speaking to you. 
And, and I think that's really crucial for all of us to understand when it comes to sharing our faith. That's so good. Jesus was never trained as a, True. he was never trained as an orator. I don't know to what degree the Jewish system would train people to you know, communicate, but we do know that there were rabbinical schools and we do know that rabbis were teachers of the law, but they're human beings, they're intelligent. There's going to be some skill there, right? Some capacity. And there's going to be preachers. There's going to be people who are capable orators. Jesus was not developed in the schools of the rabbis to proclaim biblical truth, to proclaim divine yeah. truth. But yet he did it in a compelling way, so compelling that after the Sermon on the Mount, like people are like, whoa, this is, what was the statement they make? Is it They were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. He spoke as one who had authority, right. not as the scribes and the Pharisees there in, in Matthew chapter 7. So it's he was a very capable presenter, a very powerful preacher, and the, the depth of insight, the, yeah, just the relevance of that message, it was just so right on. The people are astounded, and this is the product, as you're saying, of his life. Yeah. And his life, he was being educated constantly from his mom. He was a homeschool kid whose mom taught him the scriptures. And he's in the temple worshiping, you see, in Luke 2. Yeah, he's he grew, the Bible says, in stature and in favor with God and man. Mm. So he's just, that's a really interesting point. Hey, I want to point out to the listeners that in Luke chapter 3, it says that Jesus was about 30 when he began his ministry. And in Luke chapter 2, he was 12 when he went to the temple. I don't think the text explicitly says he was 12, but it was typical for a 12-year-old to be first brought to the feasts in Israel. So you can estimate that he's 12 at that point in Luke 2. And Luke says in Luke 3, explicitly, he was around 30 years of age when he started his public ministry. So what do you've got there? 18 years? Yeah. So you've got, and Ellen White, is it's implicit to the text of Luke 2 that Jesus realizes that he's the Savior, like at that point in time. It's implicit to the text, but Ellen White explicitly says that he realized like he was the Messiah at that point. Like mm -hmm. it was like he saw the Pascal lamb, the ceremonies, the rituals, and he understood this all revolved around him and it had something to do with his mission and that he was the called Messiah of God. Like at that point, yeah. like that's a heavy re revelation for a 12 year old. Absolutely. And like you said, I think that's implicit in the text when he tells Mary, when she says, why have you done this? Why have you come with us? And he said, didn't you not know that I must be about my father's business? That's when it clicked. And that statement he made to Mary reveals the fact that he realized that he, he was the Lamb of God. He was the Messiah. The, that's right. At the very least, you'd have to say before that point in time, he knew. And because he refers to God as his father in a very unique way. So he knows at 12 that he's the Messiah and he begins his public ministry at 30. So 18 years of life, his knowledge that he's the one, he's the savior is going to inform every decision he makes every day of yeah, his life. True. And this is going to, this is going to prep him to not just have the, he's not just going to choose to study and to learn and to know on an intellectual level. He's going to practice. He's going to develop himself. He's going to apply. Mm -hmm. And yeah. this is going to bring everything together in that really powerful sermon. That's a good absolutely. thought, hey. Yeah, absolutely. Another aspect of Jesus' ministry and, and that we don't often think of as, as much as being evangelism, aside from teaching and preaching verbally and proclaiming God's word, is the one-on-one -on -one encounters and those personal encounters that we have with people where they ask us a question 
and we get to answer and point them to a Bible verse or to ask maybe a question back to better understand it. These one-on-one encounters are most recorded in the Gospel of John. John seems to record more than any. You got Nicodemus, you got the woman at the well. The list goes on. People throughout the Gospel of John, Mary and Martha, when Jesus went to resurrect Lazarus and as individual conversations. But something that you find Jesus was a master of was hearing the question behind the question. And I think this is really a key. I had a professor once, actually, when I was at Andrews University, I went back for a a graduate degree and God opened the door. I prayed about it. He told me to go and I went. And one of the professors I had that was just excellent, his name is Jerry Moon. And Dr. Jerry Moon taught Ellen White's writings and Adventist history and really a, a godly man. And I was amazed that it was probably a month or so before I actually noticed what was even happening, a student would ask a question in class and he would think about it and he would look at them and he would answer and he would answer their question completely. And all of us were just like, yeah, wow, that's powerful. That makes sense. But it wasn't until a month in that I realized he didn't directly answer the question that they asked. He answered the question that he knew they really wanted to know, the question behind the question. The question that we ask is rarely actually the deepest question. And Jesus was a master at seeing this. The woman at the well, Nicodemus. You you just see person after person where they have a deeper question. And he was a master at answering a question with a question as well. Like the man who asked, who is my neighbor? And then he knew what the real question was, what the real implication was. He read the situation and he told a parable that answered the question more deeply and more powerfully than anything else could. And I think Jesus is the master evangelist, and in that individual conversation-wise, he was amazing at answering, hearing, identifying, and answering the question behind the question. You're reminding me of John chapter 2, where he was at the feast in Jerusalem, and the Bible says there were many who believed upon him because of the miracles. But Mm. then it says, but he did not commit himself to them. He knew all men, and he didn't want them to testify for him because he knew what was in them. So in essence, it's saying he didn't believe in their belief in him because he knew what was in them and he saw behind their profession that it was very superficial at that particular point in time and that at that occasion. So he saw behind. Now this could lead someone to the point of asking, okay, I'm not a guru. Like I'm not a mind reader. I'm a very simple person. I take people as they present themselves. You speak to me. I just take you at your word. What do we say to that person? I've got a thought, but what do you think? I'm not Jesus, man. He's the master evangelist because he's Jesus. And I'm not the master evangelist because I'm Matt. And I don't sometimes understand the question behind the question. I think it's definitely something we can develop with time, the better we learn to read people. But it's often easy to ask because people are often, sometimes people are willing to actually tell you. And you can just say, that's a really good question. What, What makes you, or has this been on your mind for some time? And as you ask a few questions like this, you'll find that usually people end up opening up. That's what I find if I'm trying to discern. Because just to tell a quick story, and I'd like to hear what you're going to say also, but just to tell a quick story on knowing where to where to strike, so to speak. Henry Ford was in Austria, and the Prince of Austria was driving a Model T Ford. It broke down, side of the road. Henry Ford just happened to be going by, and uh, he said, can you fix my car? So he said, yeah, I'll take a look at it. So he came, and he listened as they were trying to start it, and wouldn't start. He took a hammer and he just tapped, ding. He tapped a certain spot on the motor. He said, try now. And it started up vroom, just perfectly. And um, the king of Austria said, oh, thank you so much. How much do I owe you? And he said, a hundred silver shillings. He said, what? A hundred silver shillings for just a little hammer strike? 
And he said, no, 95 shillings for, oh, sorry, five silver shillings for the hammer strike, but 95 for knowing where to strike. Often we go in, guns blazing, we got this verse and that verse, and we can say this and that. And it may not necessarily be the most important thing the person needs to hear if we haven't identified or tried to discern what they're really asking. Yeah, but what was your that's thought right. on that, man? I'd love to hear yeah, no, who's that's the really, person who's like, that you really know, emphasizes. Yeah, that really emphasizes your point, that illustration. Like Jesus seeing the question behind the question, knowing how where to begin with a person and how to really engage with them. That's a great skill for any personal minister, right? We're all mm. called to be personal ministers in, in one way or another. And yeah, that's really smart. I just think that one way that we can develop the ability to see behind what's happening and to hear the question behind the question is develop a little bit more self-awareness as individuals mm. and be more honest with ourselves. I think one of the reasons why we don't comprehend what's really happening with others is we're not honest with ourselves about what's happening in our own lives. We self-deceived people rarely have clarity. If I lie to myself all the time, it's hard for me to see clearly when I'm looking at others because I regularly practice self-deceit. Hmm. I blind myself on a regular basis. For whatever reason, I'm running from my conscience or I can't handle the truth or the a difficulty. It's just too difficult for me to accept a certain thing about myself. So I'm just dishonest with myself about my own choices and decisions. So I'm, I'm practicing self-deceit. A person who's practicing self-deceit has a hard time seeing. Hmm. When seeing other people and understanding other people, that's point one. Um, point two is the Bible says, no temptation has taken you except for that which is common to man. So that is to say that what I struggle with is what, is what everyone struggles with. Maybe not specifically, but generally speaking. So there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. My, my temptation is common. It's not unique to me. And so my struggle is everyone's struggle. I'll give you an example of this. So I get like a 20-year-old. Okay, I can't tell you how many times a young man who's 20 years old has come up to me and said, hey, Matt, just want to chat. Got this struggle. I got this struggle. It's just killing me. It's wearing me down. I don't know what to do. And I can tell the person's hesitant and not wanting to share with me what's going on. They're 20. They're single. They live in a sensual age where everyone's being sexualized and they're single. What's I wonder what they're struggling with. Nine out of 10 times, I know exactly what they're struggling with because I was a young man who was 20 and lonely and whatever in a sexualized world. Okay. And then when I'll say, hey, are you struggling with, how'd you know? No temptation has taken you except for that which is common to man. There's only, I only had three choices, bro. Like it was pretty easy guess for an older guy. So that's another thing. Yeah. So I think that those two are a pretty good start. Thirdly, the Bible says that the word of God is living and powerful, and it's mm. sharper than any two-edged sword. And then it says, piercing even. It goes as deep as the dividing apart of soul and spirit and bone and marrow. And then it says, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Bible is actually... It comprehends, it discerns human thoughts. So if I base my understanding of everything on the scripture illuminates me, it, it, it points me to what's really going on. So Jesus is the word of God in, in human form. And so he's the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God. If I fill my head with the written word of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, and I interpret every reality through that, it gives me discernment to see behind what I see. Yeah. Does this make sense? Absolutely. It doesn't, you're not judging. The word of God is judging. And somebody might say, Matt, you're encouraging us to judge. No, I'm not. It's the opposite. I'm encouraging, encouraging that when every judgment, every decision, and every situation is seen through 
God and what God says about it, you have insight as God sees, because the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so I compare the circumstance I'm in, the situation I'm evaluating, I filter it all through the word. Mm. And that gives me insight and understanding. What do you think of that? Yeah, powerful. Absolutely. And something you shared brings to mind, the Bible says in Psalm chapter 15, like David asks this question, who shall abide in your holy hill and who will dwell in your tabernacle? Who is going to be one, like the type of person that gets to live eternally? And then he answers and he says, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. It's so important to speak the truth in our hearts because like you pointed out, it can actually skew the way if we lie to ourselves constantly, we're deceiving ourselves and we're fine with that. It will affect the way that we see others and the way that we can discern correctly the situations that we face in life. Absolutely. Jesus had this really great ability. You know that when you were talking to Jesus, he probably didn't make you feel like he didn't believe what you were saying. Yeah. Like he probably did not give you the sense that, man, this guy thinks I'm full of beans, like I'm just mm. speaking smoke. But sometimes he knew he knew you would be, mm. right? True. Like, I think we can learn to accept every, to take everything that everyone says as if they're sincere. We believe in them and we hope all things. But at the same time, we don't just build our, all of our reality upon what someone says. You know, a fallen human sinful person tells me something. I don't just immediately assume that they're being perfectly transparent, perfectly mm. accurate, with, yeah. with me. If I'm honest with myself, I know that I present to others what I want them to see, what I want mm-hmm. them to think. Yeah. How often am I perfectly openly transparent about what's happening in my heart, what's happening in my mind? Mm-hmm. And if I am rarely transparent, I'm more transparent than most, right? Like I have a reputation of man, Matt Parra. He's the kind of guy who tells it like it is. But we're all like, we're all insecure. We're all afraid. We have sensitivities that we govern how we communicate. Mm -hmm. We have different degrees of trust, different levels of trust with different people. And yeah, like, why would I expect that what Joe told me on Tuesday is like the absolute truth of everything in Joe's life, right? No, like, that's not reality. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it's very easy to, yeah, I don't know. It's that's just a basic thought. We're getting into the world of psychology here, but I think there's a little bit of value to that, hey? No, definitely. Another aspect of something that we can learn from Jesus is if you read the Gospels, you find certain stories where it's like, why would that person react to Jesus the way that they did? Like John chapter five, for example, the man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus looks at the man and he says, do you want to be made well? And the man is arrested, his attention. And he answers saying why the water is his hope and he can't get in the water when it's stirred, etc. And then Jesus looks at him and he tells him, rise take up your mat and walk. There had to have been not only something in Jesus' eyes and his facial expression that communicated that he was God incarnate and commanding him something that would be a miracle that he could do, but there had to have been something powerful in his voice as well. And I I think that there's actually a, a powerful book called The Voice in Speech and Song. It's a compilation of Ellen White's writings. And Matt, I know you're familiar with it, but for our listeners, powerful book. And she brings out some really amazing points about the way that Jesus used his voice. And just before, maybe I'll just read through some of the section headings just to give you like an idea of some of the things so you can check it out on your own uh, if you'd like to later. I'll just say for me, I've realized again recently and more fully, I'm Armenian. Like my dad is Armenian. Okay. And so like he, <laughs> he owned a smash repair and mechanics shop, like literally hundred meters from our house while, while I was growing up, a little town in Northern California. 
Pacific Union College, Angwin, anyway, that area. And he worked with my uncle, his brother. And he said that people would come to the shop and they would ask, they would be talking. And then they would ask my dad afterward, what are you and your brother fighting about? <laughs> and my dad is, we're not fighting, we're just talking. <laughs> and so in the Armenian culture, I think there's a tendency when you're passionate about something or excited about something for your volume to increase, right? But um, that's not always received positively. As It can be misunderstood. Sometimes people... Like their parents would only raise their volume when they were angry. And so it can communicate easily the wrong message. But Jesus was a master at using his voice and using his voice in a way that was like correct, that was the best possible way. And uh, I just love this. If you want to read this, check it out. Chapter 11 of The Voice in Speech and Song. It's called The Nature of His Voice. And it talks all about distinct enunciation, a calm, earnest, musical voice love in his tone, music to the ears, etc. Chapter 12 is called Effectiveness of Presentation. Chapter 13 is Love, Sympathy, and Kindness. Chapter 14, Patient Calmness. She says he had no hasty, angry words. He had gentleness of disposition. Chapter 15, Simplicity, which is about content, and that's something else that we can get into. Uh, chapter 17, Words of Truth, etc. And I just find it so uh, powerful that there are all these points that she draws. And this is a woman who is heard Jesus speak, seen him in vision. Like It's like she was there uh, listening to him preach and teach. And so check those out. You will be amazed. And uh, we can really know more about the master evangelist through reading these things. But I, I just love that Jesus used his, there wasn't shouting. There wasn't when he was preaching and teaching. There wasn't straining his voice. There wasn't shrieks of volume. But it communicated the compassion and the kindness and the justice and the fairness and the firmness and solidity with which, you know, the gospel needed to be communicated. And so that's something that I can learn from Jesus is be sure that the way you use your voice is always the best possible. Yes, that's so good. Ellen White says that nobody ever spoke like Jesus because no one ever lived like Jesus. Yes. So. Right. It wasn't as if he was putting on, he wasn't like a drama actor who, yeah, that's a dramatic right. actor who sat in his room and go and went, okay, how do I speak to really change yeah. the world? No, these were authentic expressions of who that's he right. was as a person. And it's awesome. He's, yeah, he's the master. And I'm thinking he had to have some serious conviction, like what you're saying. Even the apostles, like in Acts 3, when Peter and John raised the crippled man in front of the temple up, it's okay, get up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Mm. Like the guy had to make a decision. Okay, I've had a crippled arm for a long time. I, I had a surgery in my neck where they took out an abs, like a lump that was there just to do a biopsy to see what it was. And now I know so much about the condition that I have that it was like obvious to me that ENT surgeon should have known better. Like he, mm. he made a wow. huge mistake. I have neurofibromatosis, what they call a mosaic form. It's just nerve tumors, that, tumors that grow in your nerves. And so mm. you, you can't remove them. If you remove them, you, you trash the nerve and wow. your nervous system is like, your nerves are like telephone wires yeah. that go from the control center of your brain and send messages to your muscles. So your brain controls your body through your nerves and sends messages to your various body parts, you know, hmm. anyways. So this guy with all of his education, skill and experience, like ruined my arm and the use of my arm forever because he severed hmm. my spinal accessory nerve doing something that he should have known better. Hey, the guy's got six lumps in his neck. They all display like nerve tumors and you know, nerve sheath hmm. tumors, but he didn't wow. know any better, but he's an ENT specialist, right? This is why you can't always trust the specialists. Somebody says to me once, whenever people talk to me about qualifications, I say, look, 
I would have rather got a surgery from a witch doctor if they wouldn't have done to me what that guy did to me. His 10 years of education meant nothing to me because he ruined my arm for the rest of my life. But anyways, you're like, when you get used to being crippled, so I haven't had the fair use or the proper use of my arm since I was, since two, since the year 2006, I got wow. the surgery. So that's 14 years ago. Now, if somebody said to me to do a movement that I haven't done for 14 years, like I, I would be like, whatever, dude, like, yeah. Yeah. I've tried that. I, I can't. The, the, the muscle is not there. So when you get a, a nerve severed, whatever body part or muscle that it's enervating is what they call it, it just dies. It just disappears. So it was my upper right trapezius muscle. So if you ever see that I, I, I slumped over in my posture, it's because I don't have a right trap, which is a muscle that holds your shoulder up. So my right arm slumps and the muscle just disappears. Like wow. it's gone. It, it doesn't exist. It it's it shriveled away and turned into kind of nothing. So if any person comes up to me and says, hey, Matt, do this movement with your arm, it's just physically impossible. Hmm. If yeah. I'm going to do it, my legs are crippled and I'm just going to step up. I've either got to be very desperate, very faith-filled, or it may be a little bit of both, or it has to be something in how someone spoke to me. Yeah, that, that instilled faith. Inspired confidence and faith where I'm yeah. just like, sure. And then it works. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. awesome stuff. So we got to speak. We believe what we're saying. True, right? Ellen White has this statement in the book Evangelism. She says, brethren, speak like you believe what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. That's important. Yeah. If we're not sure, the people who we're sharing it with aren't going to be sure either, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Justin, dude, Jack, go ahead. Good. Last thought. Say, yeah, total last thought. It's just the last thing is, as we see in Jesus teaching repeatedly and his preaching, was his power was in his simplicity. We sometimes think we have to have the most eloquent language or complicated arguments and explanations. And nah, Jesus' illustrations were farming illustrations, agricultural ones oftentimes, fishing ones other times, just what the people could understand. And he has some deep statements. Jesus taught some very deep. We can mine that truth forever, and we're not going to fully be able to expound it. But Jesus' power was in his simplicity. And we're told that ours will be as well. And if we want to be like him, we have to keep it simple. Keep it true and powerful, but simple. Because simple He wasn't trying to impress people. Exactly. He wasn't trying to impress people with the depth of his intellect. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Man, one last thing. Jesus, and you touched on this at the beginning by saying he spent his whole life in preparation for his biggest sermon, the Sermon yeah. on the Mount. And I, I think that for Jesus, and what we see when Jesus is ministering to people on earth 2,000 years ago, is that his evangelistic ministry wasn't, it wasn't summed up with an event that was at this time on the schedule for the year mm. of the church. This is when we're going to do evangelism. I think for him, everything was part and parcel to his evangelistic ministry. So Absolutely. everything was tied to his ultimate goal, right? Like his, now it's, it's true that he, he, Jesus was willing to do things for people who wouldn't be saved. He heals the 10 lepers and only one comes back to thank him. So he's mm -hmm. taken advantage of. There's tons of people who eat the food that he miraculously produces who eventually crucify him. There are people who heals and frees from demonic possession who will eventually be inspired by Satan to kill him. So he's willing to, to just give and be a blessing. That's a part of his ministry. But every effort, every action was a part of his attempt to bring people nearer to the kingdom of God. So evangelism wasn't an event for Jesus. It was a process. It was his yeah. whole life. 
It was everything. It and was everything. It needs to be for us as well. If we treat it like an event, oh, I'm off duty right now, we'll miss some yep. of the most amazing divine appointments that God has lined up for us. That's right. And there were pinnacle moments where he was doing what we would call evangelism. We yeah. wouldn't call all of what he was doing evangelism. We'd call some of it community service, some of it health ministry, because we, we like to divide things up in our society, in our mechanized society. We like to divide everything up. But so we would definitely say, this is he's doing health ministry. He's at the wedding. He's just, he's just, He's building bridges. He's doing friendship evangelism at the wedding feast at Cana. And nobody even knows that he did the miracle except for a few people, right? So he's just a guest at a wedding. But all of it works together because he's so in touch with God and he's living a life of worship and praise and commitment to God mm-hmm. that yes. it's all working together to bring people closer to the kingdom of heaven. And yeah. you could call that legitimately evangelism. It doesn't have to be Absolutely. what we kind of section off as what is evangelism to be part of his evangelistic ministry. It all plays a part. And then you have these pinnacle moments where it comes to fruition, where the efforts all come to fruition. And that's what we call evangelism, mm. but it's all really part and parcel. So I think the master evangelist, really, he his successes came because he lived a whole life of ministry to others and yeah. love for others and a desire to pull them closer to the kingdom of heaven. So Amen. with that uh, last little bit of exhortation and, 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 um, and encouragement, and I guess you'd say expounding upon Jesus, we'll end. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, for joining me, brother. And thank you guys for joining us here at All Things Evangelism. Look forward to seeing you next week. Take care.